This is Bail Street, crime, finance, and everything in between. Hosted by Ira Jettelson, bail bondsman to the stars, and Danny Moses of The Big Short fame, this is Bail Street. Welcome to Bail Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettelson. On this episode, we have Tim Seymour, very handsome man, currently host of Fast Money on CNBC. You, are, you are gorgeous, Tim. We're, we're going to talk about his Yeah, past. do you guys want to get a room? I yeah. Mean, we, could, we could do a threesome, right? <laughs> we, I mean, I'm exactly. surprised I was told to wear clothes right. here. This is Bail Street, not yeah. you know, Porn Street. Sorry. Sorry. That's my, that's Can we right. even still laugh like this? I'm yeah. Of course. Talk this about is not wearing yeah. clothes. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. No, I mean, I know we can do that here. That's why we exist, <laughs> what I've heard about Bail Street. Exactly. But, uh, and then, of course, Ira, Ira, your favorite subject later, I have an old colleague coming in. Are we going to talk about Wall Edward Street? McCabe? We're going to talk about Tesla. Oh, I know. Tesla. I could so I could help. On we that. used to work together, and Tim will chime in on that as well. So I can't wait for Ed to come in, Johnny. Because <laughs> Ira, Ira loves the Tesla stuff. So uh, anyway, Tim, thanks for joining us, and uh, great to be here. Yeah. So why don't we get started with kind of uh, what your life was in the investment world that led you up to uh, CNBC? Because we talk about the. Russia involvement in the Trump campaign a lot here, but you had a completely different view of Russia because you were there long before Trump was ever begging for money there, I think. so. Yeah, it's it's pretty extraordinary to be in this country now where you're actually seeing Putin's popularity increasing within the Republican Party um, for a guy that spent two years living in Moscow in the late 90s. Um, when you know we couldn't get arrested trying to talk about Russia um, unless we were talking about embezzling uh, Bank of New York, Harvard Institute money, which all got funneled through the Bank of New York. And um, it, it's actually a decent segue into how I ended up being on TV, and then we'll backtrack into it. But but the, you know my CNBC life was formed out of being uh, one of the few guys that was able to, to to get in there and talk about emerging markets at a time when, uh, frankly, uh, in the early days of of 2001 and two when I was just doing a little bit of TV for any of the financial networks because I had some expertise in that part of the world. The oil was at uh, you know, 13 bucks a barrel, 15 bucks a barrel. We hadn't gotten into this commodity super cycle conversation. Um, and, and I was running the U.S. arm of a Russian investment bank, and we'd set up a broker-dealer here in 2001. And again, this was not far after uh, you know, what people knew about Russia outside of uh, the financial crisis of, of 1998, um, and we'll talk more about that too, but just that, that the Russians were the ones that had funneled all this money illegally through the Bank of New York. And so I was, I called up a PR agency and I said, put me on TV and, and, and I'll talk about something hopefully is relevant to the rest of the world, which is at that time was maybe an oil. There was an OPEC meeting coming up. And as a guy that was uh, very fluent in Russian capital markets at the time, we clearly had a view on the oil market, and we clearly had a view on commodities, and and so that was my parlay into uh, uh, into financial TV, which was that I was you know hopefully a, a a round-eyed guy who you know was the guy next door who happened to know a lot about Eastern Europe and wasn't KGB, and and I think that and having a little personality and and apparently at the start of this uh, uh, this podcast someone made a reference to my physical appearance, <laughs> um, you know maybe they liked how. I looked. I have no idea, but but the rest is truly history. And it it, it uh, uh, before getting into life in Russia and you know my view of the world today, um, it was pretty cool because then we started. I started doing. I started being a voice for uh, emerging markets in 2003. For uh, Jim O'Neill suddenly coins the BRICS term, and everybody wants to know about this consumption demographic story. And frankly, we were in the middle of it. So uh, I was getting called into almost every. 
you know, financial media source that wanted a view on commodities and wanted a view on emerging markets. And, and uh, when CNBC and CNBC, I was doing a lot of stuff with. But and when they when they put together a show called Fast Money in 2006, they asked me to to come in and read. And, you know, we'd like you to based upon the, the conversations you've had on air, we think you'd be great for this show. Um, and outside of growing up in a big family and, and, and you know, not being afraid to fight my corner, I, I really wondered why you know, the rest of the world wanted me to talk about Microsoft and, and Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, if they wanted to hear about uh, Roman Abramovich or what was going on in rates or macro or, or the dollar, you know, that was stuff I felt like I knew a lot about. But long story short, uh, Fast Money has been a franchise that's been on for 12 years now. It's been a lot of fun. And, and frankly, we were showing up every night during the financial crisis talking about stuff that, you know, like, like all of you, we were in disbelief what was unfolding around us. So it's been, uh, it's been great. CNBC has you know, been uh, a great place to be meeting a lot of very smart people. Our format is, is interesting. What we're most criticized for is probably the strength of the show. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. So we cover a lot of ground, and it's a fast-paced environment, and and off we go. Fast money. Fast money. Ira, you bailed out some Russians over the last 20 years, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I deal with a little uh, people from Brighton Beach. You might know some of the guys. When we say bailout, how are we defining bailout? Well, we're not talking about your bailout. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it isn't a financial bailout. No, there is a financial bailout. It's just uh, getting them out of jail and getting them back to Brighton Beach and letting them see what they could, you know. Get into next, whether it be organized crime or prostitution or whatever they want to do. Well, they were a lot of these guys were probably people building businesses out in 2008, and uh, um, yeah, the the, you know, the quick on that is is look, um, I came out of business school in '95. I worked, I uh, went through the training program at UBS in capital markets, and I was a fixed income guy, and um, somewhere in uh, and I started doing emerging markets uh, corporates. We had a pretty big franchise at UBS. And a mentor of mine who, in, in a kind of a typical cycle at UBS back then, they were paying people 4 or $5 million a year uh, just, to, just to fire them. <laughs> um, and this was a very talented big bond trader from the 80s, and he was a mentor to me. And he got blown out and ended up traveling the world and ended up in Moscow and doing consulting for uh, a group called Troika Dialogue, who was the, uh, the second founded brokerage firm after the fall of the Soviet Union. And in sometimes, sometime in the middle of actually early two thousand, sorry, nineteen ninety eight, after UBS and Swiss Bank had merged, and and uh, in a classic, you know, sloppy Wall Street M and A transaction in the financial sector, where you know really it was it was there was a lot of overlap and where um, one one plus one equals a half, not at, three at, at right. best. Right. And it, it also it also meant uh, me instead of showing up at two ninety nine Park Avenue um, at 5.30 in the morning, uh, I was going to have to show up in Stamford, Connecticut at 5.30 in the morning for a guy that lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I didn't like that trade. So I decided to go out to Moscow in the spring of 1998 just to kick the tires uh, with this uh, firm that had you know, sent an overture that they'd be interested in me coming out there and, and, and working for them. Uh, got on a plane in June of 1998 uh, and came back with a job offer which which uh, was interesting. Is that all you came back with? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Look, you weren't married at the time a, yet. This is a family show, right? And sure. Then, yeah. yeah, I, mean, yeah. Um, I went to Moscow and came back with herpes, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, different. Yeah. No, I know. Just, and I'm glad we're on different mics. Um, so right. the- um, That was Ira, by the way, just to be clear, honey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, look, the as, as I like to say, uh, there was a lot of guys in Moscow in in 1998 that weren't there for for capital markets. I mean, they were guys that. Can yeah, I, you can, can I say whatever you want. Leave. Can I make a reference to the guys that weren't getting laid in in the U.S. that, that were you know yeah, that was there. that was why they were out there. I right. mean, they they had extended their their frat their frat lifestyle. But um, so I left in in June of 1998 with a job offer. Came back to New York, um, mulled over, and decided that uh, it. Someone was going to triple my salary, give me a much bigger business card than I deserved. Uh, it didn't matter that Russia was ripping at the seams in terms of uh, what was going on out there. I just thought it was a fascinating place. And, and it really was from a capital markets dynamic. I mean, I, I was single, and uh, although I at, at that time was dating my now wife. So, um, you know, we, 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 dealt, we dealt with the, the, the reference problem that we just alluded to. Um, there are some distractions in Moscow. Um, so what I did when I moved to Moscow in August of 1998 is I, I you know, brought ice to the Eskimos. Um, I brought my, uh, uh, my beautiful then girlfriend, now wife, um, who was uh, studying at Emory University in her first year of law school. Right. Um, Go and Emory. somehow talked her dad into uh, letting, letting her take, get an internship out there with a U.S. law firm, which I'd lined up. I paved the road all the way to get the yes. And um, but anyway, so so I, yeah. you were so. You know, it's funny. So the biggest crisis of our lifetime, certainly people will point to the global financial crisis, but the long-term capital debacle that took place, you know, the irony here is not lost that Clinton was under impeachment or for the Monica Lewinsky, yep. yet the markets were blowing up. But the reason the markets were blowing up is because the ruble and the Thai bot. So can you talk about yeah. just being in the center of that? Because that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, but by the time I got to Moscow and got my paid, did some guy to get my stuff through customs, um, Russia had defaulted on $40 billion of, of local GKO debt, had sacked their government, and had devalued their currency by 300%. Uh, and this was, you know, essentially, you could argue that this was the last domino or just another domino to fall after the Thai bot one year earlier uh, failed and, and began a domino that went through the Asian crisis and really culminated in the Russian crisis, which somehow took down some of the smartest guys in the world at long-term capital who were offsides. And, and despite the fact that they knew a lot about tail events, um, missed the fact that this could have been uh, a tail event. By the way, investing money in emerging market economies where the IMF uh, and the Western institutions that decided they were going to control these new economies um, stipulated that they run a very tight currency band and basically led these countries into bankruptcy because they forced them to adhere to uh, a Western interpretation of where their currency was supposed to float. And and so, you know, I got out there and basically a bomb had gone off. Uh, now, for me, professionally, it was a good time because actually you everybody was leaving. Um, half of my former clients from UBS, which were hedge fund guys and 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 um, prop desks from su supposedly some of the best and the smartest, uh, not only the aforementioned long-term capital, but, you know, Lehman's prop desk, you know, you name it, they were all there and they, they were all trapped in a major way uh, in distressed assets. So it was a great time for me to be going, hey, remember me? Uh, I was your trader at UBS. I now actually work with the Russians and we have a use for those trapped ruble debts. And, and ultimately, that was something that, that ended up being a very interesting time. But my, my view of the world at that point was um, the absurdity uh, that this really, you know, Russia was a pimple on the world's economy at this point. And let's be clear, I knew this both as a guy that was trying to solicit Western capital markets interest um, from some of the biggest institutions 
countries in the world who frankly didn't care either before or after the crisis about Russia, that Russia really, you know, ultimately embodied um, the basically the, the the systemic risk that had been created um, in the world as a function of both ignorance, greed, uh, and and. and I think an inability to really understand the 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 direction of where uh, a debt bubble, which we all kind of know now, can be a cancer that's impossible to carve out. And it always comes back to leverage, right? It's always leverage in the system that takes you down. It's not. Uh, it isn't the bad trade. It's if there's leverage on it. And long-term capital is a perfect example of a levered trade that was good, great on paper, run by Nobel Prize winners that didn't execute. And it can be anything. I mean, this happened to be Russia. Thailand, but it was all connected. I, people don't understand. A lot, some people do, but some people don't understand how interconnected leverage can be. It just a, it's domino effect in everywhere that it goes. Domino so. effect, and and the domino that really began, as far as I'm concerned, the first Fed sponsored bailout of, of of its kind, the kind that that really led us to, frankly, where we still are today, and and where central banks are are uh, um, trying to save us from ourselves, when in fact they are probably the big bad, you know. Uh, bully, whatever you want to call them. But look, 98 was a bailout with the New York Fed of an unprecedented uh, size and style, um, bailing out some of the richest, um, supposedly most reputed people on Wall Street, and at, at the expense of the system. And, and the system was, was the one that got screwed. Um, and it paved the road for a series of missteps by central banks uh, that led us to the financial crisis. But again, it, the financial crisis was... Uh, the seeds were, were were planted not in a housing bubble that might have found, started in 2005 or six. Um, look, I, I'm of the view that I'm, the the unfortunate events, the horrific events around 9/11, uh, of which as a New Yorker I will never forget, and and you know, that 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 today was to me the day that the music died because um, the series of missteps that followed with the central banks, uh, in my view, was that we were already in a place where we were teetering in recession or coming out of recession, uh, and and Bin Laden strikes, and we were not going to fall, and, and we were going to do whatever we had to do to to put our foot on the gas pedal, and and 9/11 to me um, is really what created. Uh, I think, and I hate to look. I don't want to acknowledge this uh, and give those folks that that uh, uh, were behind this some sense of, of of achievement. But really, look, this this puts central banks uh, and the U.S. Fed uh, in a position where they felt at any cost we now have a license to do whatever it takes, takes for the system. Out. And, and we've seen that so many times now. And it's easy to say uh, in 2008, the Fed had to do what they had to do. Um, and, and maybe that's right, by the way. Uh, we can get into that. But, but the, leading up to that point, um, and you, you know, this started in a conversation about Russia, long-term capital set a horrific precedent for central banks and markets. Yeah. No, it did. And everyone was, quote, caught off guard and, and all that jazz. So Ed has joined us. Uh, Ed, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm talking to that mic. Yeah, I know you're not used to sitting home in a in a small office with talking about Tesla a lot. So you know you learn to live with yourself a lot. But that's microphone there talking to that thing. So Ed and I worked together uh, in at Oppenheimer in the late '90s. So during the tech bud, uh, we worked with Henry Blodgett. Um, so we had a taste of kind of internet bubble. We've talked about Henry on the show before. Great guy, but he went on to Merrill, where you left and went on, but. Prior to you leaving there, you and I would always talk about the markets and being short and how ridiculous tech was. And fast forward that right now, and, and Tim will obviously go back to cannabis where we want to go eventually here. But uh, Tesla is a microcosm 
or leftover branch, I should say, from all the things that are wrong in the system. And there's no one that I think knows more of the story than you do. And, you know, we don't have, have to go down the rabbit hole too much to just understand that, you know, to me, and I'm sure Tim will chime in, it's just math. And, and I know that sounds easy to say, but uh, just there's a lot of misinformation about people following this guy around in the brand. And, and I'll let you talk in one second. But, Tim, you and I both know that people follow these leaders, whether it's Dick Fold or whoever, in, into the abyss. And they don't question things along the way. Someone has a, quote, brand. Lehman had a brand. Bear Stearns had a brand. Right. Yeah, Long term capital had the best brand. They were untouchable. They were the geniuses from Solomon Brothers and a Nobel Prize winner. So, so. yeah, it, without, without question, look, I and, and as someone that's also talking about uh, iconic uh, brands every night on CNBC, it, it, it's not difficult to understand what the brand is at Tesla. Uh, it's not difficult to understand why Elon Musk is is a, uh, a charismatic uh, and identifiable um, hero for some. Um, it, it's, you know, I would argue, and I can't wait to hear the analysis here, but I would argue that Tesla also is the manifestation of central banks gone mad. Uh, if money wasn't free and investors didn't give a shit or have any idea to give a shit about the underlying premise of a balance sheet and what capital should cost, Tesla would be out of business two years ago. Yeah. All right, Ed, with that to layup, he just handed you <laughs> something. So, I I agree with Tim that this is really the confluence of zero interest rate policy and low interest rates and a cultish CEO. Um, and it's going to end up in the laps of retail like it always does. Uh, and you saw it today, T. Rowe cut their position in half from 10% stake to a 5% stake. ARK Investment cut their stake by 44%. But to the balance sheet, the average retail investor doesn't understand it. And you know they ended the fourth quarter with $3.7 billion of cash. But $792 million are refundable deposits, not a permanent source. So, Ira, let me ask you a question on this. I want you to get involved. If you put money down for something, I don't care if it's a television, a house, a car, whatever, you would expect something in return, correct? Of course. So, Ed, when did people start depositing thousands? For, you know, forget about the fraudulent roadster, the semi-truck that'll never be out there, all the other, the why, whatever they've collected for. Mm -hmm. If I was the guy that believed in the Model 3 was coming, when did I potentially put down my first deposit? Mar March of 2016. So March of 2000. So we are three years into a car that, for the most part, 80% of those have not been delivered. This sounds correct? like a private equity fund. Um, it's called, a, yeah. A long lock. It's, it's called Ponzi. Yeah. So I'm not earning interest on my $1,000 that I gave. So Ira, put it th Ira would already have this person killed. I can tell you that for a fact. Uh, Ira, if you gave money to somebody- March of 2016, probably April of 2016, he'd be <laughs> Exactly. Well, <laughs> so. well, they put the deposit down based on a car that doesn't exist today, a $35,000 car with a $7,500 federal tax credit and then a couple thousand in state and local taxes. So really a $25,000 you know, car. Okay. And that's the mass market. Um, and they haven't gotten there. They can't get the cost down low enough. And now what he's done is he has picked out all of the high-priced customers that will buy it for fifty five grand. And now you've got all these people who don't have their car. Some don't have their deposits refunded. Many don't have their deposits. Ma many. I can't what, put a what, number on it. What do those people do? Where they, do they go? State attorney general. I'll tell you and what. what are they I doing? mean, Ed, I'm 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 sitting next to I'm sitting next to Ira, and I mean, you know, Ira is not the guy you want to stiff on his Tesla. I'm telling yeah, you right yeah, now. I, mean, he, he's, <laughs> I drive I drive a Hyundai, but I'm just saying. I reacted to plug that car in. You would never buy like a car. Never. Like that. not, okay. That's just not who I am. Right. It's not, I'm not built that way. Right. right. 
So anyway, keep going. So that uh, sorry. So I'm just saying. So of the cash that's on the balance sheet, and by the way, for everyone listening, the 3.7 billion that they show is on December 31st at 11:59 p.m. 59 seconds for that exact moment in time. What it was at 11:59 and 58 seconds, 1.5. Or, I mean, or the next day. Or the right. Or the next day. I'm saying it's a point in time. Yeah. It's totally accounting shenanigans. Well, but, 792 million are customer deposits. Of right. That 3.7 billion on 12:31 at 11:59. Yeah. Another 663 million are overseas, so you know would have to be repatriated. And then there's a 920 million dollar convert coming due March 1st, and it will not convert. The stock right. would have to average 400 dollars for the remaining 11 trading days of right. February. To do I don't that. think a small regional broker dealer in Canada is going to get it to 400. So <laughs> even though they just upgraded it, but yeah, yeah, I saw that. So, so let me just cut, cut. So let's get back to now. You said they go to the state attorney generals. No, no, people probably have complaints. Now what happens now? Take me through what happens because I've I've read in the paper that the SEC was looking at him and the Feds were looking at him and where do we stand now? Yeah, good question. Well, in terms of what the SEC was looking at, they were originally looking at the funding secured, which was the largest securities fraud ever committed in my career, right? Out in the open by the CEO of a sixty-three billion dollar company at the time. He settled that with the SEC. Okay. He's not allowed to deny the allegations, which is pure fodder for the private litigation that will follow. Right, so so he had to allocute. Um, his his settlement, you know, required a few things: a new chairman, two new independent directors. He had to he had to relinquish the chairman's role, um, and he had to and he had to not deny the allegations. Now, so he, and he, hold on, hold he had to, on, go ahead. Hold on. So he had to relinquish his position, but is it like casino where Robert De Niro now becomes the the chef inside there, and somebody else is running the company? But meanwhile, he's still running the company. Yeah, I mean, okay. he he owns twenty percent of the stock. Okay. He owns the board. His brother's on the board. Is Kimball still wearing that hat? He always yeah. oh, love that cowboy yeah, hat. Man. I mean, it's a good national look, plant right? plant your seed day. I've yeah. thought about that. You know, that or one of those. You remember that? If I, hair, <laughs> if I had hair like yours, there's not a chance I'd cover it with anything. <laughs> That's a good point. In right fact, now, I'm kind of bummed out that he put some some uh, headphones on me now. It's kind of screwing up my hair for no, tonight's no, we show. Got, we, we got gel. We'll gel you up before you reactivate. Yeah, don't worry. The fast. Fast Money Crew will get you all made up. But, but to your yeah. question, people are getting refunds, and then there are a lot of people, whether you see it for, uh, via Reddit or via the Tesla Motors Club, who are complaining about not getting their deposits in a timely manner, if at all. So This so, company is cash-starved. Right. And, and you know, it's funny because we're talking about the balance sheet, and, and people were actually, if you look at their last quarter numbers, the free cash flow on some level was kind of interesting. Um, how is it that a company – that effectively is a, in a growth phase and is growing as fast as they are, cut cap. Uh, so free cash flow grew because CapEx fell by 60%. Right. How do you explain that? And, and, and shouldn't that be alarming for people who, again, this company supposedly is going through now a growth cycle that um, is validating its proof of concept that there is the demand. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're never supposed to have questioned demand. Right. Um, we're supposed to have at least questioned, could they do it? Could they scale? That's right. But I, I'm shocked by seeing CapEx falling by 60% for a company like this that's in the process of doing what right. up, I, upshifting. I mean, if you annualized fourth quarter CapEx, it was $1.3 billion. Maintenance cap. CapEx for this company is two to two and a half. Right. They're going to come out with a Model Y. They're supposedly going to build a plant in China by the end of the year for $500 million. Volkswagen built the fastest plant ever in China in two years for billions of dollars. Right. So, And then you look at SG&A, it's down year over year, and we know about all the service and service center issues, and we know R&D is flat for a growth tech company. Right. It's a broken growth story at best. So, Ed, you had the greatest point you and I were talking last week. If Tesla has just decided to be a Model S company and, and kind of a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. 
you could have seen the company potentially been successful. You know, don't mass produce a car, make a car that's only available limitedly, you know, which it is limited since no one can get one because, <laughs> you know, you can't get one. So it is a limited edition Model 3. But my point is that they could have done that. Mm-hmm. But the, the, making the decision to mass produce a car, right, it's put them on the edge of bankruptcy. They probably are. They're already insolvent on paper. Right. We, we, we know that. So, you know, just thoughts on what made them, what do you think made Musk go through with this decision other than having no clue? And when I say he has no clue, He's an idea guy, whatever. There's a shred of genius in there somewhere, sure. I, I you know, I get it. But his eccentric nature will end up being what's going to bury him here. Right. Simple nature. He doesn't understand capital markets. He doesn't understand no. stock. And that should scare people, especially when you're coming out of the tweet. When he had to pay the $20 million fine, Ira, so the, the Tesla had to pay $20 million, That's shareholders, by the way. And Musk was requ- required to pay $20 million. After all that was done, Musk goes, I'm going to repay you by buying. I'm going to show I'm going to buy $20 million worth of Tesla stock. As if that was raising money for Tesla, he doesn't. He doesn't even understand the dynamics of the market. But anyway, he, people following this guy, he's a marketing genius. I'll give him that. He created his own brand. Well, no. it wasn't his. See, see, even you thought that it's his. He, he is named co-founder of this company because he got it in a legal settlement. It was co. It was co-founded by two other people that he forced out. He came in and did the financing. He forced them out in a pa- Machiavellian power play, and then in some type of legal settlement that I haven't spent a lot of time on because. It's, not worth my time. Right. He got named co-founder. So, Ira, th- this guy's like he won in a poker game. Yeah. I want to yeah. go back to the numbers here, but this is all about this guy's self-preservation and continuing this kind of scheme. So, the reason I got involved in the stock was the the Solar City deal. And Tim will remember that, and I remember that. He bailed himself out because he had a margin call because Solar City stock had started to drop. So, he used Tesla stock to buy Solar by, City. By the way, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, no, you know, as, as somebody that that again has to uh, talk about this name often I, I'm uh, I'm shocked people don't bring up solar city all the time because because l- let's be clear solar city should have gone out of business and bankrupt and that's an immediate affront to the ethos of of the Elon Musk brand and 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 it didn't because it was bailed out so again um, people act as if everything this guy's ever done has been infallible and in fact solar city was a colossal colossal you know, screw up. That only existed by subsidies, just like Tesla pretty right. much has only existed right. with subsidies. Sorry, yeah, I mean, go we back. We touched to... on a lot of things. So, Sorry, yeah. Um, as it regards Solar City, when the postmortem is written on this, that will be the seminal moment. There's no question. He bailed himself out. He bailed his cousins out. There's no synergies between the companies. The company should be been restructured, um, and he took on two point six billion dollars of debt doing it. Yep. Right. So that'll be the seminal moment in the postmortem. You asked about the mass market, and I'll give you. Two, th- two things. What mass market auto manufacturing is about and why Musk went there. If you are an excellent mass market automobile manufacturer, over the course of an economic cycle, you will be lucky to earn your cost of capital, you'll be lucky to avoid bankruptcy, and you'll be lucky to be afforded a 10 times PE multiple. It's a horribly tough business. Cyclical. It's cyclical. It's precision manufacturing. GM trades at 5.9 times there forward and they're as well run as anybody. Right. Yep. There you go. So. That was the fatal flaw. He could have done Model S and competed with Ferrari, which is a nice little stock, and done artisanal cars for fanboys and guys in midlife crisis and had a nice business, right? right. But he – and why did he go to the mass market? Because he has said on many occasions that this is to sustain the earth, right? He is not acting as a fiduciary of shareholder money of which he's raised tens of billions right. or the tax benefits in the billions that he's benefited from. He even said, I think it was on 60 Minutes, like if they go bankrupt but drag the rest of the automobile uh, industry into electrification to save the earth, that will be positive. 
Well, that's not positive for me if I'm shareholder. Not for a shareholder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, right. So it's not a non-for-profit. Actually, it's a non-profit. They're never they're going to make a profit. Right. And then, can we go back to the numbers real quick? Because just because uh, because I think it is important for people to understand. Let's let's just get rid of the three point seven billion in cash. Okay, so we're we've already gone through one point seven billion of that's not kind of real. We don't know what was out on, what was out on the credit line of that cash. Sorry. Um, Did they max out the ABL? Ma- we don't know no, anything don't yet. yet. Right, the K's not out yet, so that doesn't come out a few days. The deposits made up, but also um, the um, they haven't paid their their freaking suppliers. Well, they have three point four billion dollars of payables and two point one billion of accrued liabilities. And they have been financed not only by their customers with $500 million of interest-free loans with deposits, but by their suppliers. And, you know, all it would take is a major supplier to go cash on delivery, and this, is, this, this ends. Would you consider Panasonic a supplier or a partner? They're, they're a supplier with, to which Tesla has billions of dollars of purchase obligations based on volumes that are coming nowhere near achieving. Yeah. So when people like Tim, this is a good. So when you see, you know, you know, NVIDIA, which I will ask him about Bitcoin, what he thinks at some point, but, uh, but when you like it, like it used to, so Apple would report earnings and then all the companies that sell components into Apple would either go up or down based upon it. Right. It's it's pretty logical in terms of what the semis and everything will do as it relates to big company. Panasonic last week gave us, this is post Tesla quarter, Give us a great look into what's going on in their quote North America operations, which mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong is mostly Tesla. Why did the market ignore it? Other than there was a fluff piece out that day, I'm sure on something on Tesla. But that's m- fundamental research that needs to be done bottom up, and it's just it's just trades away from it completely. What is it going to take? Well, you know what what it's going to take. If you take Musk's twenty percent out, which doesn't trade, you take out the short position, which they're pretty pretty emboldened. That doesn't trade. You know that's probably another twenty percent of the float. You take out T. Rowe, which owned 10% up until today. You take out Bally Gifford and a few others. You, this market cap turns over every 14 days. It trades. It doesn't trade on fundamentals, okay? Yeah. So you got to realize that. So what breaks it? The opposite of a short squeeze. You get a long squeeze. You, know, you get the big institutional holders who finally can't go in front of an investment committee and support a stock where the CEO is admitted to fraud or a settled fraud case, um, where all prognostications have not been met, where... The quick ratio is 0.46. Um, but you have a hold on. Let me just back up. So this note, this 920 million dollar note, is due on March 1st. That's right. You brought up another great point, not on the show yet, but you will now. If you're a, a senior bondholder right now, um, you're senior to everything. Obviously, you you, you trump to convert. Mm-hmm. Why is the board? This I'm going to answer my own question for you. I'm going to give you the. Why is the board not saying, "Hey guys, we need to be looking out for these senior secured holders here because they act. We we actually need to." We need to do a prepackaged here. Right. Well, when a company is in the zone of insolvency, which is a legal term, now how you define it is a little bit nebulous and different lawyers would argue it differently. But directors have, when a company is not insolvent, really have a duty to the company and to its shareholders, and that's really it. But once you're in the zone of insolvency, you have another hat you have to wear, and that's creditors, right? So I think this company should have been taken into Chapter 11. Um, a year ago. Who are the big bondholders? Who owns that paper, and why are they not vocal? Um, I think I think Franklin and T. Rowe own half of the uh, high yield um, debt. So T. Rowe has Which started this. Like so they they own they own the equity side, and they own on on the credit side, yeah. and, and therefore the equity side is not going to be terribly happy if the credit guys raise their hand and say, "Hey, look, by the way, this could be in the zone of insolvency." Right. right. There's, there's a chance that. T. Rowe is out of their position. That that's as of December thirty first. They sold half. Yeah. We don't know where, where they are, but so they've sold. Arc has sold. 
Yeah, yeah, Saudis have right. Saudis have hedged out. Saudis have hedged out. I'm yeah. sure they didn't get the heads up on January 17th, but that's a whole nother. Uh, well, th- that'll never get investigated. But uh, so the next steps could be here. Well, and then you um, see, and, and maybe it's a good time for the CFO to leave. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I mean, if, if I, I were him. Yeah, right. Oh, and then this getting Maxwell. a little sloppy out there. <laughs> then then this Maxwell acquisition, you know, of this other you know battery. I, I knew Maxwell ten years ago. It's been a science project for ten years. It burns ten million dollars a quarter. I mean. I don't know what I thought they made cassette tapes right. in the 70s. <laughs> Someone actually put that tweet out there. They had the guy in the, yeah, in the chair in the with his chair. head's blowing yeah, out. Right. Remember yeah, Tech Hi-Fi? Anybody go to Tech Hi-Fi? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Great I, time. I think everybody Sorry. at this table has used cassette tapes. <laughs> yes, which I think so. Eight tracks. Eight tracks. <laughs> I still have an eight track. Nice job, Ira. Reel to reel, I thought. <laughs> right. So what other things are we missing before we move on to cannabis, which actually is a since must likes cannabis. Well, we will get to that. What I would say is the most valuable thing Tesla has to date is its brand. It is a remarkably strong brand. But because of the underinvestment in the business, because of the quality issues, the service issues, the delivery issues, the most valuable thing they have is being degraded daily. And it's okay when you want to sell the fanboys in Silicon Valley who will be very forgiving because they're early adopters by nature. But now you're going to try to sell this car in the mass market to the Midwest where practical people with limited budgets need cars to get to work. That's where the brand damage will start to really hurt demand. And when demand is hurt here, and it is, it was only 6,500 Model 3s in January, down 74% versus December. The fixed costs in this business are enormous. They cannot afford to have demand wane. And they did sell everybody on the narrative that demand was unlimited. Just watch us do production. Well, now we're finding very quickly that's flipped, and demand is weak once you've exhausted two and a half years of a waiting list in about two quarters. Right. Can, it, can I ask you a question? And I'm actually not going to name this person, but a, a guy much smarter than me, we were talking about this, and this is really his thought. So I'm going to just acknowledge that this thought of another man, not me. But Ed, is it possible that Tesla is one of the first bankruptcies that happened, not with the stock going to zero, but with the stock at 100 bucks? Um, and it, it, it's, it's shocking. Um, the the level of indifference and and awareness that this effectively could still this is not a stock going to zero it's a stock going out of business. Yeah, I've always said like this will have a thirty billion dollar market cap the day before it files, and yep. it, it's you, uh, right now you're shorting a cult, and he is a very strong leader of that cult, and these people believe that this is how you signal that you love the environment. I love the environment, but uh, you know sure, it, but that's what it's become. Like if you don't like Tesla. You're a middle-aged old man who doesn't care about the environment, which is, couldn't be further from the truth for most of us, but yep. um, we that's all, how strong the cult is. Well, we've also lived through frauds before, and the frustrating thing is to shake people and get them to see. But you brought up a great point, which I think is the nail in the coffin for the company, is that if someone like Ira was in the market for you know, you know, you know, an uh, electric vehicle, and he called me and he says, hey, and I didn't know even Tesla was a publicly traded stock, let's say, right. even though I pretty much wake up thinking about it and go to sleep. <laughs> well, they say I didn't. And I said, well, you'd have to consider the following. You know, you're going to spend 50 to 60 grand. I'll just use that price since that's what the Model 3 is versus, you know, Jaguar I-Pace, which is coming on the Audi, would be more expensive. But bottom line is that, well, if you never want to have to get your car serviced, you never want to have to rely, then sure. But if it enters the mind, the consumer's mind, that the idea of getting it served, that's what's creeping into people's minds. Now, that to me is, is the death nail right. of the company. Now, and That's right. And so that's the killer. And I don't know if we're going to wake up and the Department of Justice is is going to say, all right, we're going after him. He's been arrested or we can't find him. He's you know on Mars. He took one of his rockets, whatever. But maybe it's that. Maybe it's yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the thing with that, you saw the SEC. They were completely feckless in the way they handled it, right? Yeah. And now I just don't know if there's political will You know, in Trump's world of deregulation, 40,000 American manufacturing jobs. Do you want to be the person who puts the bullet in it? Or will they do what's typical? 
let it fail on its own, and then come there to put out the smoldering, what's left of the smoldering fire. Right. Well, speaking of smoldering fire, but before we, is there any other <laughs> points you want to make uh, on this thing? We can always come back to it, but. Yeah, I mean, just you know, nothing, you know, okay. a, again, the, the, dim, um, the degrading of the brand yeah. and, the, and, the, and the resultant fall off um, in demand will yeah. kill it. So what, so the 10K, last thing, mm-hmm. for people that actually look through, and I would, I would beg everyone, as and I'm sure Tim would agree, anytime you invest in a company, I don't care if it's Tesla, those Ks and Qs are available. So Qs come out quarterly, Ks come out annually. They tell you a lot about a company. Spend time reading them. What am I going to read yep. in this that the next day I wake up on Twitter and people are going to be saying, can you believe what's in the K? Why don't the longs care? I mean, it's it's tough to say. And, and Price Waterhouse Coopers better watch their P's and Q's with this one because it's going to be one of the most scrutinized 10Ks that ever came out in history. Right. Um, when does it do? Well, they typically, they're typically they accelerated filers, so it's 60 days after year end. Okay. They've typically filed it anywhere between the last week of February and the first week of March. He pulled forward his earnings date. He had never done the earnings I know why pull. he did that. Well, because the deliveries were going to be 6,500 exactly. down 74% on February 2nd. Correct. So he didn't want to have to talk about it. He also didn't want to have to talk about a CFO leaving. Um, he put that at the end of the call. That would be in a press release. Rest assured, right. it's going to be March 1st, Friday night. Friday, we, we, we call those Friday night dirties. If it's, not, if it's not delayed. Right, if it's not delayed, so or that delay would come out. So smoldering fire can light a lot of things. So let's switch back, and we can always come back to, to uh, yeah. Uh, let me just yeah. add one more thing. Please. What, what befuddles me is why a guy who has been a, readily, a ready issuer of stock now wants to live this Spartan life and live on the edge, and why he does not raise capital, equity capital. Now, there's a lot of speculation that he cannot. And concurrent with his settlement with the SEC, Tesla filed for a Reg D waiver, yeah. Um, which you could imply means they, they aren't a well-known season issuer anymore, and their shelf is ineffective, and basically a Reg D a wa- waiver would allow them to do a pipe. Now, that's a whole different world. This would be the largest pipe in the history of the world, and it would kill the stock. I don't know that that's the case. That's what I've read as an implication. Um, but the two things that would, you know, I think ends this is demand and the inability to raise capital. Right. And let's just be clear. If they are able to raise capital of some kind, it's a near term. It'll be a pop in the stock. It'll be near term. But unless they raise, you know, $10 billion. It needs, it needs it, tens of billions of dollars tens of to billions do China, dollars. So, to do Model Y, to do right. pickups, to do semis. I mean, to, to really bring the service infrastructure up to snuff. I mean, superchargers aren't keeping pace with deliveries. I mean, right. it's a lot of problems. The assumption out there is that this company can come to market anytime they want and raise capital. That I can tell you from t- speaking to enough investors, um, which Ed sounds like you think is is a complete. Is well, a well they would have done it. I think they would have done it. I mean, why would you put the company close to existential risk if you could just solve all your problems by raising equity capital, and you've readily done it in the past, yep. and your stock has been rewarded every time you did yep. it? Yeah. Good question. I don't know that I'm not saying with certainty I know he can't, but it is odd to me that he has not. So yeah. let's switch to a sector that brands are starting to matter, don't matter yet. It's really quality, which Tesla knows nothing about either. But uh, so Tim and I kind of got to know each other uh, in the world of cannabis. Attended a couple of conferences together. Tim hosted a panel uh, that I was on, um, and it's certainly a very exciting space. And you know, when I look at something like Tesla, which has debt-heavy structural problems, organizational problems, bad corporate governance. Um, I look at the space of cannabis and I get excited. And so, Tim, just maybe uh, I know you're affiliated with a couple companies out, out there, Green Organic Dutchman, a couple others. But uh, what kind of got you interested in the space? And and will we will we be seeing more about it on Fast Money? Uh, the 
more time that goes by on this. So yeah, thanks. The early days of me talking about cannabis on Fast Money were were uh, with uh, some Cheech and Chong reruns and some <laughs> some Bond water Bond water sound effects, which uh, was a little frustrating for me trying to tell the story of. Look, I'm an emerging markets guy. We've established that I care about you know new asset classes and and early phase uh, capital markets development around them, and and that's something that to me is is. Uh, uh, What's going on in cannabis, and and frankly, it, it is some of the same stuff as emerging markets. It is a consumption story. It is a demographic story, um, and and then and then of course there are the the dynamics that have everything to do with uh, this. Isn't just a particular demographic group. Um, this is this is a case where you've got you know whether it's millennials, whether it's Gen X, when it's Gen Y. Then you also have. You know, uh, baby boomers and 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 people that are not just reliving Woodstock, but obviously going through a medical phase in their life. So, look, I love this sector because it's a new asset class, and I love investing in new asset classes because I think some of the things that we're talking about as they relate to Tesla, some of the things we're talking about as they related to the Fed and market dynamics, uh, are never um, more at the center of when you're investing in in an emerging asset class. So clearly, corporate governance. If you're an investor in the cannabis space, should be outside of macro legislative signals, um, market overall volatility, uh, and risk appetite. You better be focused on on, on corporate governance because, really, the, the entire story so far, and we're uh, whatever inning we're in. I love baseball, so second or third. It's so. always a baseball analogy for me, um, but it, it, it's it's a case where. Really, all we've seen so far is some creative capital markets uh, structures and and deal flow to get these companies on the map so that they can get some growth capital because that's what they need. But um, there's some great companies out there. There's some really really bad companies. There's there's a lot of zeros in cannabis right now. Um, and I'm not saying I want to go out and short these companies right now because frankly, some of the same dynamics that might exist even with the Tesla stock um, exist with some of these uh, tradable names. You, you know, and and you know, it's Tilray for those that have been following the story here. Uh, I, I nothing bad to say about the company. Um, in fact, you know, Brandon Kennedy and and his partners there have done a phenomenal job. I think actually on executing um, not only a series of strategic partnerships that are. Uh, bringing in some of the biggest multinationals in the world and are part of the obvious story for anyone that's following cannabis. Um, but they've done it uh, in a way while getting the first NASDAQ listing and an IPO. These are, these are things that don't happen to anybody. And, and so, uh, but what it's created is a valuation for a company that's very difficult to explain under any circumstances. And then it brings in some of the best and the smartest you know, hedge funds in the world that say, well, I've seen this before. I'm going to short these guys yeah. um, with no free float uh, and, and lockups that, frankly, the private equity guys that control it actually can do whatever they want. They, can, they, they, don't, they don't have to, you know, they can hold their stock more. So one of, the, one of the things I think that people don't understand about the space is, and I'm the first one to recognize, you know, like a, like a fad or something that I think is crowded, something you're taxi driver or shoeshine, you know, they always say, whoever mentions it to you, your mother-in-law, you know, the trade is over. This is not held by institutions yet. So retail money came first. And rarely do you see a trend when retail money comes first. Now, Bitcoin, it did to a degree, but then you got real institutions that came behind it with blockchain technology and some of these ICOs, which that's a whole different show. But but this is really interesting because people have chosen to ignore it. Some of the institutions, because they legally can say, my firm won't clear it. I can't trade any of these names. But the most incredible thing to me is the amount of market capitalization 
globally that has been built around a, a product that's not legal, at least in the U.S. yet. It is now in Canada, which is why you have the scarcity value. and why We're in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And even if you believe the Canadian names were 80% overvalued, you're in the 60, 70, 80 billion range with the top kind of 25 global companies, roughly. I mean, mm-hmm. the, these U.S. companies yep. have been able to raise capital on the CSE up in Canada uh, without being able to be to, to list. So, so Tim, you you know you work, well you work you you uh, guest appear every night on Fast Money for CNBC, um, but you also that happens to be in the studio for Nasdaq. So Nasdaq has decided to list several of these Canadian companies, but legally they can't quote can't they could, but they don't. What do you think? Uh, do you, do you think we'll see a U.S. listing, or you think we need the States Act or the Safe Act to pass in order to get that? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think. What what the exchanges are, you know, they have, it's easy for them to fall behind some of the regs um, as it relates to the federal prohibition. And I think, not surprisingly, are playing it as safe as a lot of the investment banks are. Um, so I do think that the States Act, uh, and for people that don't know what that is, you know, effectively, this is going to be uh, a series of legislative uh It's going to have a a bunch of components to it that should allow just that, the states to to get on with it, to, to, uh, and by the way, this is why um, cannabis is such a fascinating political issue too, because you can make an argument that some of the most conservative uh, or libertarian uh, strident folks in the world say, that's right. You know, if, if the state as as agreed to legalize, leave them alone, uh, and this is this is essentially the 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 ethos of what we believe as citizens. Um, so the states and and clearly you know, at a time when we see budgets getting holes blown through them, the states have a very rational economic uh, reason for for wanting to legalize. Um, and then all of these dynamics that I think are related to that job flow, et cetera. And, and then obviously in terms of the social good, um, and I, w- we can talk a lot about that, but I, I think back to the exchanges, um, I think the States Act will should give a framework for allowing companies that are operating legally in legal states to be able to be banked. Uh, it will also probably do some things that uh, should address the tax implications for retailers that are involved in the space, who right now basically are, are by definition going to be unprofitable based upon the, the owner's tax burden that they have to spend. So um, I don't think the I don't think the exchanges are bad guys here. I, I think no, they're, no, I, I think they're I think they're following. Uh, they're all I would ever ask as an investor and and someone that's involved in the sector uh, in the same way that I kind of feel about this and showing up on TV every night. Be consistent. Have the same message uh, and don't treat some people differently uh, than others. And I think right now it's it's wide open in, on interpretation. Ed, I got two good ideas for you. So the Fremont factory could be a huge greenhouse. The <laughs> Reno facility could be a massive one. And then Buffalo is going to be looking for an economic, uh, just so to Tim's point, I actually think, uh, and Tim, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And Ira, you know, when, when people are taking this drug, like there's a, there's been a stigma associated with it, obviously for many years, uh, we've talked about on the show, but I think wellness category is the one, forget about constellation investing and making, you know, cannabis infused beverages, forget about Altria, which is Philip Morris, you know, taking a stake in Kronos to protect what they're seeing going on, obviously, in the space. Wellness is most at risk. And so you take Tylenol for something, you take Advil, someone takes Ambien to go to sleep. All of these things potentially are going to be, and that to me is the kind of the next big driver. And so 
you know, I would think about. I'm not saying you take medication for various things, but uh, you've been you've been you've been battered around. You know, you played football, basketball. You got some ailments, but imagine being able to take something that's completely non psychoactive and alleviates all your issues with no side effects. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. So, I mean, Tim, you're seeing that obviously. Pharma. So there's a lot of arguments that there's a lobby. You know, lobbyists have been blocking a lot of things, and pharma, we all know, is the most powerful in the world. Opioids, are, you know, have, are still on the market. Obviously, you can still get those. So, what are you sensing that things in Washington? For you know, forget about the States Act and the Safe Act. You see people in the studio. You see people come through. Yes, we're in the third inning here. But are you seeing like that? That's going to be the sector that you think kind of gets this thing to the next level. Yeah, look, I, I think the recreational cannabis trade is is one where there is some ability to gauge the size of the market based upon either the recreational drug illicit illicit uh, total alcohol uh, addressable market um, is what it is and and by the way I don't think it's a zero-sum game when assessing one versus the other which I think a lot of analysts do but when it comes to wellness um, lifestyle, um, but certainly wellness as it relates to OTC sleep and pain, the two things you've just addressed, that, that's 80% of the reasons people walk into, into CVS, right, um, when they're looking for an OTC something. Um, I end up somehow finding about 90,000 other things to buy when I walk in there. But, again, you know, I'm a metrosexual, so, I mean, there's screen creams, right. there's exfoliation. Yeah, look, whatever you're using. I mean, Is there a Seymour aisle, by the way? <laughs> I'm, look, I'm going to have my own line at yeah, some point, so, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think as it relates to that, uh, I don't care who you're asking. You could pick up a lineup of 10 people um, from your grandmother to uh, uh, you know, your science teacher. They, they, they are probably using CBD in some way now. And this is, this is at a time when most people still really haven't had access and haven't had the ability. I, I think there's, of course, going to be this absurdity in, in CBD panacea, which is already happening. Last week, when 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 essentially New York City went after all of these coffee shops and and you know falafel stands and you, right. know, you, you you name it, you know you can get your hummus with with some CBD in it. Guess what? I like regulation. I, I actually you know I like you know where I want my government. I want my government to protect me from food supply from from, from <laughs> things that actually they are there to help me about. I right. you know, and I won't get into my own views of where I want the government in my life, but I do want them regulating food products, and I think that's largely a good thing. So the fact that CBD uh, in the early stages in the market that's only just become legal, so the hemp uh, component of the farm bill uh, made the ability to lug cannabis cannabis plants on eighteen wheelers around the country legal, no problem. But we still don't know what it can be. Right. Uh, put into product-wise and what the bottle needs to look like and read and accountability. So, um, But the great news here is I don't think we know the size of that market. And and the, the even better news is that some of the stories that I've heard, and this is not snake oil, and this is, you know, this is definitely stuff that I think is a lot more legitimate than some of the allegations that come out of Fremont, um, are, are that there are things that are being done in terms of treatment uh, with with various cannabinoids uh, combined with THC and different permutations, by the way, science, which has been uh, unable to get any development dollars in this country ever, right. um, in pediatric epilepsy and in Crohn's and and um, you know you name it, we're, yeah. we're we're seeing yeah. it. And the good news here is that I I have friends who have uh, had a really a life-changing development with a child based upon using CBD oil um, and development of the brain. 
And so I'm not going to suggest that this is some magic potion for everybody. Uh, I think it needs to be regulated. I think the industry wants um, cannabis regulated. I think the industry wants compliance. I think that's why when people talk about Altria involved in the sector, it's actually good news. Uh, it's not bad news. Yeah, big tobacco's you know pretty bad bad guy from the past, but no one understands compliance better than 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 Altria, um, and they bring a level of of compliance. And you know most people in the industry in the cannabis industry that have grown up uh, as as building a business, especially in a legal framework, are, are people that take compliance and regulatory uh, requirements and restrict restrictions and, and transparency as, as a given. And I think that's one of the big ironies is that actually the sector is quite compliant. Yeah, no, it's exciting for sure. So- uh, with that, uh, I think if there's any other any other stuff, Ira, you want to talk about? Well, Timmy, I want, I want to hear your thoughts on Bitcoin. Oh yeah, there's a Bitcoin. Well, you know what's 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 interesting is again for the smart Wall Street guys, when when your uh, wife's guitar teacher or the Uber driver at two o'clock in the morning, when you've had a couple and you're slumped in the back of his car, or you know these people are telling you that they they own Bitcoin, you're you're ready. Running. You're ready to short it. The thing yeah. about it is, those those guys were giving me that that pitch at five thousand Bitcoin before going to nineteen thousand. So, so you know, I think as we talked about a retail asset class first versus institutional second. To to be clear, I think there is a. There's no question that there are many. It's a populist thing on some level. It's not just uh, wild speculation. I think there's a lot of people that feel like they understand, identify, are tired of being part of the, you know, the the, the parasitic centralized platform and say, I, I believe in this. And, and I think that's what's really cool about it. Um, I think blockchain transactions are, are are proven to be both secure, efficient, and and a way to do business. And, and hopefully, uh, I think that's effectively where this is all going. I think the non-regulated um, speculative insanity of 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 a lot of these cryptocurrencies is is going to be again the books haven't even been written on this yet um, so uh, it's it's a difficult time I just think as an investor who who feels like you know you're supposed to. Th- this was almost too easy to call and I'm not saying it's over so but but w- where it feels now is. All, all of the uh, theory and belief around blockchain as a, as a, as a mechanism for businesses, individuals, countries uh, to transact is great. Um, the concept that individual people can create currencies as a store of value and circumvent, circumvent the U.S. Treasury. Again, I go back to what do I want my government for? I'm really, really happy that the U.S. government needs to know about these transactions, every single transaction. Right. And, and that's never going to happen in a world where people are allowed to create currencies that um, can essentially, by definition, are there to evade that process. Right. So, Ira, that probably didn't answer your question of what you do with your, your Bitcoin here. Yeah, but, pretty much so. But you, but you didn't you mention to me you thought a lot of institutions would come in and just get involved in No, what I said was in order to validate, you need banks. Even if, if I'm, if you Same and I are selling cannabis. Bitcoin, but you still need a bank. So you don't circumvent the system to Tim's point that way. Where it went wrong are these, you know, coin offerings, these ICOs, initial coin the, offerings. That had nothing to do necessarily. It was a spinoff of... Ethereum and Bitcoin right. and Litecoin; these guys were creating their own currencies out of mid air, out of thin air, and you know. But didn't they get rid of them? Well, here comes the SEC. They 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 clamped down. Right. They didn't. You know, they were late to the game. They're they're nowhere on Tesla, but they're <laughs> late late to the game on that. And so that was a lot of money lost by retail. That actually killed the trade when you when you look at it in hindsight because those same people yep. owned Bitcoin, Ethereum. So I think there is an application for whether it's health records 
or whatever, but let's not kid ourselves. Bitcoin was started out of money laundering, sex trafficking, drug trafficking. It's so so ironic that the cannabis- laws, The laws have changed, so some of those well, laws- Well, it, it, it'll happen over time, but uh, it, it'll be an ongoing debate, so- um, so, so Ira, I mean, are you are you packing some cold I'm storage packing. right now? You packing? packing you packing. you you know? I mean, I'm packing. When you walk the streets, I mean, yeah. you have to look over your shoulder a little bit. Sometimes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Good guys, thank you. Thanks. Great Thanks to be here. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Bell Street. You can subscribe to our podcast at bellstreet.com or any other service that you use to download podcasts. We'll see you next time on Bell Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. 